Welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind Onco Snacks Edition. I'm joined as always by my charismatic and rambunctious co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. How are you, Mikey? I'm good, Josh. I really, really hope you keep the pause after the editing that took you. <laughs> The, the time it took for you to come up with rambunctious was a solid five seconds of silence and it was glorious. Yeah, beautiful silence. That's what my wife says. No, I'm, I'm kidding. So today we're going to be talking about extravasation in the context of treatment. Michael, do you want to take it away? Absolutely. So extravasation is something that we frequently are confronted with and if you're anything like me you sort of say ah put some ice on it rub some dirt on it it's fine at least that's how I was at the start of my training and obviously since then have come to realize that there's a lot more to it than that and dirt no longer works with uh these things dirt no longer works I don't think dirt was uh was ever recommended by the American or European societies of medical oncology maybe the ye olde England society of uh medical oncology so no milligram per mil kind of ratio you needed to tell no it was it was dirt it was dirt per leech i think that was the (laughs) unit they used um but the definition of extravasation is the process by which any liquid and obviously we're going to be talking about iv systemic therapies in this episode but the process by which any liquid accidentally leaks into surrounding tissue during an infusion So in oncology, as mentioned, this refers to the inadvertent infiltration of chemotherapy or really any other intravenous agent, but chemotherapy is the most locally toxic, so that's what we'll be focusing on today. Agents that can cause or be involved with extravasation are divided into the following categories by the severity of the reaction they can potentially cause. The most severe, the one that we're very afraid of, are known as vesicants or blister agents. Vesicants as well, Josh, I was uh, surprised to find in my reading, also refers to, just to give our listeners a sense of the severity we might be talking about, some of the biological weapons like mustard and chlorine gas used in World War One. So you can imagine what these can do when they're uh, inadvertently injected into subcutaneous or subdermal tissue. Examples of vesicants or vesicants, depending how you want to pronounce it, include DNA binding agents such as alkylating agents, anthracycline, so that's your doxorubicin in breast cancer, and mitoxantrone, and the non-DNA binding agents like vinca alkaloids, so vinorolbine, vincristine, vinblastine, and taxanes like paclitaxel. Other irritants include iphosphamide, liposomal doxorubicin, etoposide, fluorouracil, platinum, zarinotecan. As you can see, there's a whole host of chemotherapies used pretty commonly in colorectal cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, and the non-vesicants like bleomycin for testicular cancer, gemcitabine you see in lots of upper GI-type cancers, methotrexate, pemetrexate, and cyclophosphamide. So vesicants, irritants, and non-vesicants are the three categories in descending order of severity. You've rattled off a very long list of examples of each of those. Can you tell us about the um, about the risk factors and what we can actually do to prevent the uh, risk of or reduce the risk of extravasation with our patients? That's a really good question, Michael, and I have the answer for you right after this ad. There are patient-related and procedure-related issues. So patient-related include 
veins, essentially. I call it real estate. You want good real estate. You want real estate on a corner with nice sun exposure. So things that are small, sclerosed, mobile veins, they're going to potentially cause problems. If they've got impaired circulation, like cardiac issues, peripheral vascular disease, type 2 diabetes, if they're obese, prolonged infusions, sensation changes. These are all patient-related factors. Then you've got the procedure-related factors, including multiple cannulation attempts where you might have already damaged the vein, bolus injections, high flow pressures, inadequate dressings, and poorly implanted devices. Can you prevent this, Michael? You know, I think we like to say prevention is better than a cure. What do you do to try and reduce the risk? Well, you were talking about real estate, Josh. It's clear that Josh has real estate on his mind. Uh, but it's the Australia. Of the day, this is very true. You can't go a day in our country without there being some real estate related article these days. But it is a matter of if you have to choose a vein, choose a big one. Now, that may be easier said than done because it's basically a stereotype at this point that oncology patients are notorious potentially alongside uh, dialysis patients for having terrible terrible veins and so that's why uh, implanted central venous access devices such as ports or pick lines are very common in oncology because it allows you to get them first time every time uh, if you're choosing a vein to cannulate again keeping up the real estate theme it's location 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 avoid cannulation over joints if you can so the uh, medial veins or the veins on the medial aspect of the wrists are specifically highlighted as one to avoid in terms of the equipment you're using and obviously this depends on where you work but if you can avoid butterfly needles or cannulas that are entirely made of steel they tend to be at least in my experience josh very much phased out and we tend to use the flexible plastic cannulas uh, but if you have something that is much more unyielding you are much more likely to cause problems for longer infusions uh, a central venous uh, access device is recommended the classic for this is our uh, 5fu infusions that are infused over 48 hours through a baxter bottle um, so you really do require not just sort of for the uh, to minimize the risk of, of extravasation, but just sort of practically and logistically, you do require to receive that. If you are having a multi-drug regimen, flushing with 10 to 20 mils of saline between different drug infusions is uh, very much encouraged because if you flush and it's difficult to flush a cannula, then you know that the uh, end of the cannula, the tip of the cannula is likely not in the right spot. And at very least, then you're not starting a new infusion and exacerbating the problem. Whatever's in there is already in there, but you're not making it worse. Checking for flashbacks. So that is the uh, entry of a small amount of blood into the cannula, into the chamber associated with the cannula when you're cannulating. Uh, no, again, it's a marker that shows that you're in the right spot. You're in the lumen of the vessel. Bolus dosages of vesicant drugs, the really nasty stuff, but co-administer them with a fast-running infusion of compatible IV fluid. So you're not just giving the drug, the chemotherapy, in its pure form. You're giving it with fluid that if there is an extravasation, if the worst happens, you are diluting it and therefore potentially reducing the toxicity. Josh, how does an extravasation present? Because it can be anything from nothing, a little sort of insect bitey type um, thing to something that is really, really horrific and nasty for patients. That's the summary. 
it can be it can present just so many different ways and you know a trap for new players is that you're like oh it'll be fine it's just it's like a potassium infusion you'll get better in a couple of days some people rub might some have some dirt on it rub some dirt milligrams per mils ladies and gentlemen no so immediately you might have a change in sensation some erythema some redness pain a brawny discoloration injuration dry desquamation or blistering but you might not it might be delayed and that's the thing it might take several weeks and or several days and over that time it might become necrosed or have like a necrotic tissue that self amputates which is terrible and very scary and ulceration so i think it's important to kind of ask the question so if it's an irritant it might be aching burning tightness pain inflammation if it's a vesicant you might have full thickness loss of skin and potentially underlying structure so you should always take it seriously when the nurse calls you and it's like look i'm worried it didn't infuse or there's been some leaking or the patient had some pain because you want some follow-up of these patients it's not just a single snapshot at a single point in time and if you've got things like a port or you know a, a vascular assist device uh you might have some pain around there there might be some groin pain, some mediastinitis, and that can be some pretty rare and potentially devastating consequences. It really does run the gamut between something that everyone, including the patient, will forget about and something that is potentially life-threatening. And that's that's uh, reflected in the severity grading, which is the fairly typical CTCAE type guideline, you know, grade one is very minor, painless edema, all the way through to grade five, which is a fatal outcome. As Josh mentioned, you know, you can have anything from auto-amputating tissue, horrible necrotic, needing sort of surgical debridement and that sort of stuff. But in terms of practical measures in the moment, here are some, here's a step-by-step process that we have uh, shamelessly uh, stolen. No, I'm sorry, we've referenced it from uh, up to date, uh, which is an excellent resource for any uh, budding uh, oncologist or just any doctor out there. So the first thing, obviously, is to stop and disconnect the infusion. You don't want to make the problem worse than it already is. The recommendation and the guidelines do differ on this on this point is to leave the needle in place just on the off chance that you can either um, remove some of the fluid, which tends to be fairly unusual. It's usually absorbed into the subcutaneous fluid fairly quick, into the subcutaneous tissue fairly quickly. But there is also, as we'll talk about briefly, in certain parts of the world, availability of antidotes to certain agents that you might want to administer. Step two, obviously identify the extravasated agent. Ask the the nurse who is taking care of the patient what they were getting because that will very much change your approach and your risk stratification uh, as to how worried you are. Step three, if you can, try and gently aspirate as much solution as possible. Record the volume, but avoid manual pressure over the extravasated area as this might simply push the fluid where you don't want it to go. And if you can't get any fluid out, just take out the cannula. It's done its job um, and it's only going to make things worse. Step four, as Josh said, this is not a snapshot. It's something that is going to develop and change over the ensuing days, potentially weeks, hopefully for the better. But as we do 
in common clinical practice with things like cellulitis, you do want to, if you have a pen handy, mark an outline of the extravasated area for future reference. So you can tell whether it's getting better or whether it's getting worse. And then you need to make sure that everybody in the team is aware of the plan, the patient has follow-up. If it is a vesicant, sometimes it is uh, worthwhile informing surgical colleagues early, applying things like, so for vesicants or irritants, you can apply a dry or cold compress for 20 minutes. The recommendation is to do this, is to do this four times daily for one to two days and make sure that you bring the patient back for a review in either in a clinic or in a, a symptom and urgent response setting uh, over the next couple of days. Keep close track of it because the worst outcomes of these patients tend not to be the patients who got the worst drug, but the patients who got a bad drug but were left unattended, didn't seek medical help, and only present in the very, very advanced, very bad sort of necrotic stage. Josh, are there any other tidbits for uh, investigations and in initial management beyond the immediate uh, time stamp? Yes, yeah, something we do quite often and it might be overkill. If you're worried, you can always get a plastic surgeon opinion. I think in certain circumstances, it's definitely warranted because it puts it on their kind of radar. But also if you're worried and you just want a second opinion, it'd be very worthwhile having that conversation. After clinical examination, which I don't have magical surgical fingers, but Michael might. I definitely don't. I was going to say all the computer games you don't play. Um, you can also <laughs> do ultrasounds, help quantify volume and actually see how much is extravasated as well uh, to determine peripheral margins. You can also do chest x-rays and CT scans when you've got things like ports as well. And then we have the specific antidotes. Limited access in Europe and Australia, and I dare say America would have all of it. Um, almost <laughs> certainly. Yes, they always have certainly. the funnest toys. At the local 7-Eleven, you've got dexrazoxane, dexrazoxane, which is for anthracycline, sodium thiosulfate, the cisplatin. You've also got hyaluronidase, which is available in Australia, and they can include paclitaxel and epipodophilotoxin, which is like a topicide, and iphosphamide. You've got dimethyl sulfoxide for anthracyclines, where dexrazoxane is not available. And if you need a booklet on how to pronounce it, I do not have one. So is the evidence is based on small animal models, and it's anecdotal case reports and limited number of small uncontrolled trials. Steroids are not indicated. And so I think what that means when you look at there's only small trials it's that it is rare to have very severe reactions but it is still something that you need to think about michael if it does become severe and you are running around in the chemo unit or you're on your phone trying to call up people on a saturday afternoon to get some help screaming who who do you call is it the ghostbusters it is you beat me by one second it is the ghostbusters <laughs> you need to call your friendly surgeon and as josh said Plastics are the people to call for um, severe or suspected severe extravasations. The reason is that uh, surgical debridements and in very, very severe cases, quite large resections, skin grafts, muscle grafts, all that sort of hyper-specialized stuff is required to manage tissue necrosis. You need to provide skin or soft tissue coverage in the event of actual tissue loss. 
whether that's auto-amputated or iatrogenically amputated, you could say, as well as to manage issues associated with, uh, with central access device malfunctions. For CVADs, it's usually thoracic surgeons because that's normally where the tip of the CVAD ends up and whether the, the tube has actually broken or whether the tip has just migrated out of the vessel, you're going to need someone with experience and expertise in thoracic anatomy. So indications for referral, again, even though we're, you know, saying vesicants are the worst and irritants are, irritants are also bad, but, you know, may usually well tolerated, if you are worried or if a patient is having significant symptoms, specifically if they do not resolve for more than 10 days as per the guidelines, it's perfectly reasonable to call your local surgical team, whether that's plastic or plastics or thoracics, if you're worried. Specifically, though, if you're looking to justify your worry, if the patient has developed an infection, if there is progression of radiographic abnormalities or clinical deterioration, such as necrosis or non-healing skin ulcers, then that is a good reason for a local tissue injury. In terms of a central device, mediastinal extravasation, this Honestly, Josh, this just seems like a nightmare scenario of having potential mediastinitis. You know, I always, every thoracic surgeon I've talked to, when they, when the option in an, is raised in MDM of a mediastinoscopy, I can almost hear the shudder go through the room. I don't think anyone likes doing them. Fortunately, though, because the mediastinum is effectively a very thick fibrous sac, even if there is direct contact with chemotherapy, the incidence of mediastinitis is relatively small. But if you are concerned, if they develop chest pain or uh, symptoms of uh, systemic inflammatory response, cardiac failure, that sort of thing, get in touch with a surgeon and get in touch with them early. I think that pretty much summarises our very quick tour de force of extravasation and what to do. And I think it's an important thing to highlight that it doesn't matter which, whether an oncologist, a pharmacist, a nurse, or a med student, or a specialist, or a registrar, or a family member, this is something that everyone can be aware of and escalate appropriately. So if you're worried, do some investigations, chat to your friendly neighborhood plastic surgeon, and we'll see you next time. Absolutely. Keep a close eye on our channel for more future Snacks. Bye.